0: For April 9th, 2012, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 197. That's kind of their value add. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California, I am Matthew Rather here with the panel to overthink... Uh, community to overthink the return of Game of Thrones, uh... It's it's going to be a television uh, television uh, centric week on the Overthinking It podcast. Uh, we are brought to you this week, uh, as we are almost every week, when you're brought to you by anything by us, by us ourselves, and specifically <laughs> the overview, um, the uh, our series of alternative commentaries, which you can uh, buy, you can buy and download at uh, overthinkingit dot com slash store. And what we've done is we have watched some of your favorite movies, including Starship Troopers. They Live, uh, and the current featured one, which is Die Hard, um, we have uh, overthunk them, overthought them uh, live via Skype as we all watch the movies together, and uh, you can uh, download our alternative commentary and have the experience of sitting around uh, with the overthinkers and watching a movie. Uh, where uh your smart funny internet friends the writers from overthinkingit.com, dot com crack wise and share insights uh throughout the entire film, you need to get your own copy of each of the movies, but you can get uh the commentary at overthinkingit dot com slash store and both uh both Jordan and john have been on the uh, have been on the commentaries haven 't you that 's right we have yep yeah. And uh, as have I, and uh, I think you will enjoy them. So get them now at overthinkingit.com/slash store. Well, uh, I guess I've given away the, the game on who's on the panel this week. So, panel, your question is: uh, your question is, in honor, in uh, memoriam uh, for Thomas Kincaid, painter of light, uh, who passed away uh, before the weekend, what, uh, what art would you like to master and what natural force? Uh, would you like to be the artist of, uh, if you could pick any? Uh, there's no Fenzel, there's no Lee, so it's straight on to P, John Parich. What
1: up, what up, what up? Is this is this the first time that I've been first in the alphabetic order? Because typically Lee or Belinky will be on before me, even if Fenzel misses. And Fenzel rarely misses. So right. first first off, if you're playing the home game, this right. is a podcast without Fenzel, So so drink. Drink. But yeah, this is weird. So
0: Fenzel's, Fenzel's not first in the alphabet. So drink again. <laughs> I
1: know. So you're already a couple in, and uh, <laughs> whatever you say will be hilarious. <laughs> I know, right? Uh please, just pour yourself another one while I while I work this one over. So. Obviously, you know, Thomas Kincaid, painter of light, has sort of, has sort of monopolized that field, but I've always fancied myself a sculptor of the weak nuclear force. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to take responsibility for constructing subatomic particles in such a way that they decay on a proper schedule, that they have the proper amount of either left-handed or right-handed spin. Is that it? Am I making am I confusing? No, I think that's right. Left-handed and right-handed spin. And uh and yeah, I I put the universe together one one particle at a time. I am the the sculptor of the weak nuclear force. Excellent. Uh Jordan Stokes, what are you?
2: Well, the, the art that I'm going to master is podcasting because obviously. <laughs> um <laughs> The, the fundamental force, you know, I'm, I'm looking at a bunch of Thomas Kincaid paintings right now on Google Image Search. And they're, they're light in a number of ways. Like, they're light in the sense that there's a lot of sort of glowing stuff in them. Sure. They're light in that they're sort of light subject matter. It's a lot of happy bucolic scenes and adorable cottages and, like... Disney characters and things like that. And then also, he's kind of a a light artist in that he's not one that we would take very seriously, although I doubt that that's what he meant by the name when he coined it for himself. So I've decided that I'm going to be the the podcaster of Chipotle Burritos, (laughs) in that I'm going to podcast about them, and they're also going to, my podcast is going to be sort of informed by them and suffused by them, in the same way that his paintings are suffused and informed by light, and you can work out the concept Consequences of that for yourselves.
0: Excellent, uh, and and then also like uh, it's also a level of quality, right? That is to say, you're you're aiming for the level of quality of a Chipotle burrito, just as Thomas Kincaid was sort of a light painter of light, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, right. So you know, I'm I'm, I'm going to be good quality, but not exactly authentic, I guess. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Excellent. I'm not I'm not sure what the authentic podcast uh, would be. I guess something Adam Curry did, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, and then finally, I, Matthew Rather, am the sculptor. No, not sculptor, because you, you took that. I changed mine to architect of mashed potatoes. Sure. When I was young, uh, I used to play with my food and I would create great edifices uh, populated by peas. Uh, whole Roman colosseum of, uh, you know of mashed potatoes with uh you know structural integrity and uh, and windows and just great interior volumes even
1: rather rather be honest they all just end up looking like devil's tower didn't they <laughs> yeah yeah
2: <laughs> well there's not that much you can do with mashed potatoes as a sculptural medium right like
0: not you, sculptor to... <laughs> not sculptor john's the sculptor i am an architect Okay,
2: so there's not a lot you can do with mashed potatoes as an architectural medium. No, but
0: as, you see, as, the, um, as the, uh, uh, the architects learned to form concrete out of cement and other things... Uh, So, too, I learned to form a kind of concrete with the addition of egg to the mashed potatoes. And this, uh, you know, this makes them congeal, right? It's a binder and it holds them together. So
1: what were the the load-bearing elements in your mashed potato sculpt uh, architectural models?
0: it's, it's it's, It's great that you ask, John, because if you are served any kind of, like, sliced carrot... That is an excellent uh, replacement for a steel I-beam, you know. In, oh, interesting. And uh, in the thing, and you know, sometimes you really it gets gross because you got to get in there with your fingers, you know, and like uh, sc- and like kind of like clay, pull the mashed potatoes around the steel I-beam of of the carrots or the uh, the green beans, um, you know. Though green beans don't uh, have the same sort of tensile strength, right, of uh, of a good carrot. Um, so I, Matthew Rather, am the architect of mashed potatoes.
2: I like how we went for fundamental concepts of the universe and got not one but two foodstuffs.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, um, so, a couple of, couple of high-profile TV shows, um... Have have returned recently, and we haven't really we haven't really gone into them. One of them is uh, Mad Men. Not really on the agenda for today, because I I think I don't know if you guys agree, but I've I found it the case that a season of Mad Men they seem to all start a little slow, and you need to uh, you need to kind of give it a, a few weeks to develop and really kind of see where it's going. Has that been your experience too?
1: Usually, yeah it it takes it takes a little while to develop. They're not going to come out with a smash revelation of any sort to be like oh someone's suddenly pregnant no the pregnancies tend to be late in the season and very heavily foreshadowed and if it's season one not very satisfactorily dealt with but that's
0: (laughs) what what do you mean john this never happened you will be astonished at how much this never happened (laughs) see Uh, that see that that i thought was
1: that i thought was actually the best part of it that whole Backstory into Don and Peggy's relationship. Now, if they could only have done that without the uh, hysterical pregnancy, I guess, then, uh, then that would have been preferable.
0: Sure. I mean, I, I heard an interview with, with Matthew uh, Weiner. I'm going to say Weiner because the alternative is, is just too silly to contemplate. Um, where he said that, uh, that the pregnancy came about because he wanted to do a, a storyline about Peggy getting fat you know and that was really i mean that was really it that was the motivation um that was really the motivation behind the whole pregnancy storyline which maybe just uh is is evidence for your point that it was kind of unsatisfactory
2: yeah that's a that's a weird thing to uh <laughs> a, a weird like personal relationship with the actress to take out on the viewing public i guess <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, put, putting her in a fat suit. But um, uh, also, Community returned after a long and uh, we feared it might have been an indefinite hiatus, but it did not turn out to be because Community returned. Um, and uh, Game of Thrones is back for season two. now. Game you go- of Thrones. Yeah, and you for uh, season two, roughly corresponding to the Clash of Kings book.
1: Yes, uh starting off in the same way. So I,
0: I, I have one thing I
1: wanna I wanna kick off with is sort of the discussion. Then we can riff on this or, or talk about the series as a whole. But this past Friday I was talking with some of my coworkers at work. We were hanging out, socializing on the late Friday afternoon, and the subject came around to, you know, top notch TV and Game of Thrones, and a significant portion of my coworkers are Game of Thrones fans, which is interesting because they don't fit in the standard Geek slash nerd bucket that we would associate fantasy fiction with. In fact, I, I I would knowing them only as well as you know someone you work with and drink with on occasion. I'd go so far as to say none of them are really huge you know deep closet fantasy fans, and yet you know they're they're soaking up all of the Game of Thrones you know drama and tension and, and watching it pretty regularly, and that's that's a pretty amazing development for fantasy as a genre for television as a medium that that this show can be sort of a sort of the tentpole staple of hbo right now i mean it's this and it's this and boardwalk empire and i don't think boardwalk empire is quite as successful yet as game of thrones is game of thrones really is sort of as i understand it lifting the the prospects of the entire network
0: yeah it's great it's the it's their current sopranos right and like uh and and I think actually probably exceeds The Sopranos in in audience. I mean, the audience numbers. I think I, I don't have them to hand, but they're I think they're astronomical for a pay cable series.
1: So why why do we think that is? Why is there more of a buy to Game of Thrones than to Sopranos? It's a very interesting question.
0: A lot of it, I, a lot of it, I think, has to do with timing, right? That is to say, Sopranos was the first sort of example of this phenomenon of like the kind of. You know, prestige pay cable series, and its audience grew. You know, what I mean, over the the six seasons that it was on, so now everyone is used to now. You know, uh, the, ten years later, everyone is u- used to watching um, pay cable these pay cable series, and so it's kind of more this this delivery medium for television is more a, a, a part of the culture. So access, I, I think has something to uh, has something to do with it.
2: And yet, I mean, it's not like HBO hasn't been trying to get every show that it produces to do as well as Game of Thrones, right? Sure. Like, they throw up these uh, these pay cable tentpole series at a rate of, you know, at least one or two a year, and uh, Game of Thrones really caught on. Yeah. So that's, that's not all of it, although I do think it's a factor. Another thing is... Um, that's also timing, is that Game of Thrones had the good fortune to be released a little bit after Lord of the Rings did so well with, with everyone and sort of made some inroads into the non-geek audience for fantasy fiction, I think. But that's also not quite a satisfactory uh, you know, not a satisfactory answer. I think it's, it contributes to it, but there probably are some properties of the thing itself that made it take off.
0: Yeah, well, what, uh, sure, one thing I'm I'm trying I'm I'm looking up True Blood and trying to see what the uh, what the the ratings of True Blood, which strikes me as the other the other series, you know that. Um, so the first episode, season two, Game of Thrones, uh, three point nine million people, and I think that's that may be live plus twenty four, uh, and and so for season four of True Blood, um, the premiere uh 5.42 people so they're they're comparatively they're comparably popular right or or true blood i guess edging out edging out game of thrones but it's it's had four years to build up an audience so uh but that's another kind of fantasy fantasy series and and even despite the uh the sort of popularity of twilight vampires still seem to be kind of a uh A niche thing but with like with twilight and harry potter john don't you think that fantasy is sort of ascendant in the culture in general it's
1: tough for me to say because i have very little buy into excuse me buy into either of those uh franchises i've seen or i've read the first harry potter book and i've seen the first twilight movie for the overview available on (laughs) overthinking.com
0: and that's the free one by the way if you want a sample if you want to see what we do you can watch that one
1: if you want to hear me making fun of vampires, that's that's the way to do it. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, I I, I guess Twilight, Twilight and Harry Potter strike me as a little more obviously accessible because they take place in something like the modern world. I mean, Twilight takes place in a recognizable part of, you know, upstate uh Washington state. And Harry Potter, even though it's in this sort of magical subculture, there are clearly modern elements like newspapers and telephones and railway stations and and whatnot. I'm I'm only tenuously familiar with the with the series, but it's it's modern enough. It's a cloistered modern world. Whereas Game of Thrones is very very explicitly fantasy and not only that it's a it's a level of fantasy that's sort of accessible in that it's mostly westerners except for some you know generic generic foreign people as as represented by the uh the kalsari but uh is that do i have that the
0: Dothraks, yeah the khalasar of the Kallisar. dothraki uh,
1: dothraki thank you thank you thank you who am i who am i thinking of Kalsari, some other fantasy genre. So this is indicative of the level of fandom I bring to it that not everyone else is bringing to it, which is which is interesting, which is uh, which is why it's so which is why it's so remarkable. The Dothraki, thank you. So Dothraki being sort of generic foreigners at this point, everyone else being accessible Westerners of a of a pluggable type. But otherwise, it's it's pretty out there. I mean, like y- you didn't get this level of buy-in for Rome for instance. And Rome should have, in theory, been more accessible to a modern audience because it has names of people like Julius Caesar, whom everyone's heard of. And yet sure. uh, and yet, there wasn't that buy-in. Why, why do we think that is? Well,
0: I, anything having to do with Julius Caesar kind of feels like taking your medicine, right? because of the association with, like, school and history class and also the association with Shakespeare, uh, which, you know, anyone going to sh- dealing with Shakespeare it feels like taking your medicine. So, I, you know, I'm not surprised that, a, like, a Roman history uh, show doesn't, doesn't necessarily have mass appeal. I don't know. I mean, with, in the absence of Fenzel, I'm going to parrot something that he said uh, in our Think Tank post on overthinking it about uh, The Hunger Games, and the appeal, the appeal of the Hunger Games, and what makes the books good, um, the uh, the sense of a kind of world in disarray or a sort of dystopian world or a world that's been destabilized by, uh, you know, sort of natural disasters and economic forces or political forces. In the case of Game of Thrones, um, the, uh, I mean, it's funny how much of it just hangs on, just hangs on one. Um, one act, right? Like Jeffrey being capricious, capricious, and um, uh, killing uh, Eddard Stark, right? That's uh, you know, that wasn't supposed to happen that way, and like uh, you know, that that one thing kind of sets the events of the the rest of the book in motion. I suppose Daenerys would still be doing her dragons, uh, you know, out on the Dothraki Sea, but uh, in the Red Waste. But I, you know, uh, the Seven Kingdoms might be peaceful had had uh, Ned Stark not been. Uh, not been beheaded, but the the specter of a world sort of in chaos of people kind of losing their their uh, bearings uh, seems to be something that is um, that resonates with, with people today. Though you'd think that people would want to go to entertainment to escape from that, right? Then there's also, I, I agree with that. And then
1: there's also very much a, and this may dovetail to your point, a hearkening back to a golden age. So there are the You know, we have in the first season in particular all the characters talking about oh, you know, when we were younger we were capable of so much more. There's... Uh, there's robert and ned's conversations along those lines how and it's remember they they took control of the kingdom when they were very young men you know probably our age minus a couple of years and so they look back on that as a golden age and daenerys overseas looks back on the reign of the targaryens her family as a golden age sure. so everyone's everyone's looking back to a point in the past where things used to be great and then stuff happened and now everything's screwed up which is which is also a very accessible it's a very accessible message it's not it's not strictly conservative in the in the political sense but it it appeals to i mean it appeals to all sides of the ideological spectrum the idea that things used to be better than they are right now and uh, it's the fault of these one or two people or these one or two events that that screwed them up
2: yeah it's interesting. I think that the, the yearning for a golden age is something that is fundamental to epic fantasy to a certain degree. Like, you certainly get it in, uh, in Tolkien, but Tolkien's golden age is way more removed than the ones that uh, you're looking at in, in Game of Thrones. Like, for, for him, it's almost uh, cosmically removed it's like before before the elves even came into uh to middle earth that was when things were like all right and then things have been utterly sort of uh messed up and getting more messed up ever since then and then you have aragorn coming in to sort of establish one last gasp of uh, of civilization so it's maybe like, historically analogous to the the time at the very end of the, the Dark Ages, when, like, Rome has well and truly fallen, and the people who lived through that aren't even around anymore, and then you have people beginning to come around and, uh, and start writing stuff down again. Which, of course, like, a, a medieval historian would probably tell you that that's all nonsense anyway, but it's the way that I was taught in high school.
0: <laughs>
2: um, and then... The uh, I don't I don't quite know what the uh, the better analogy is for what you're seeing in um, in Game of Thrones, which, as John says, like everyone's got their own golden age, first of all, and has a lot more to do with um, kind of political stability than with cultural production. Like, you don't you don't get a whole lot of cultural production uh, at all in in, uh, in Game of Thrones, to my knowledge,
0: with the exception of. Uh... The songs. The singers. Right, yeah, yeah. The bear and the maiden fair.
2: And there, actually, you kind of get the... Um, y- you get the feeling that actually it is a good time to be a singer. Because, like, there's lots of stuff going going on, and the singers actually get, get paid pretty well right. uh, at various points during the series. That's something I highly doubt will make it into the TV version. So, like, those of you who haven't been reading the books and are interested in what you're missing, there's a fair amount of talk about, like how much money people get paid to sit around playing the harp and making up songs about stuff uh, that has recently been going on. I mean, which goes back...
1: Uh, well, I mean, yeah, you can, you can always make easy money playing the uh, the Lannister fight song, uh, The yeah. reigns, the Reigns of Castamere.
2: <laughs> um, but which is interesting. It's, uh, there's some line that someone has about how uh, Italy in the Renaissance under the Borgias is like 100 years of... <laughs> Death and pain, basically, and oh, from uh, and, uh, yeah, from
1: uh, from Orson Welles and the third uh, the third man,
2: right, right, and yeah. then
1: Switzerland brings you
2: the cuckoo clock. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> it, there also is some reference to like some kind of traveling theater thing, like the the mummers. Uh, wagons that, that roll up But this is kind of like a, This is sort of a, a denigrated Form of entertainment And like to be compared to that Is uh, what is to be Sort of called foolish and irrelevant uh, And so on There also I guess are fools right? In, in each of the major courts um, So there is some se- semblance Of like improv comedy Or something
2: yeah, and it's interesting, like, the different kinds of fools you see, where some of them are, like, uh, people with various kinds of mental defects uh, who are kept around basically as curiosities, and others are sublimely gifted performers, although what, the kind of comedy that they do is pretty, like, uh, pretty lowbrow. Um, it's also kind of interesting, the idea that the mummers are uh, low-class May have to do with the the point of view characters that you're getting. Like sure. you don't ever really have any any peasant characters to give their opinion on uh, on whether mummery is worthwhile or not.
0: Yeah, I guess Davos is the only is the only uh, point of view character in the novel who is not highborn. Is that right? Someone uh, someone proved me wrong. I think I think that can't be right. I think he
2: might be. I can't think of another. Yeah. You know. Um, I mean, well, certainly...
0: I suppose, I suppose some of the ones that, like, some of the, the intro POV characters, right? Um, right, right. Like, in the most... Uh, oh, I forget if it's four or five. I, I think it's in the most recent book. Um, the, the guy in the Citadel, uh, Pate the Pig Boy or something.
1: Well, And uh, I, I was gonna say no and Samuel because he goes to the Citadel in the fourth book, but Samuel is from a, from a noble house, so that's that's not a good example.
2: And I'd say that I mean you, your guy at the Citadel, even if he's the, the lowest ranking dude at the Citadel, is still, uh, he's still in, an elite audience. Sure. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, like the, the, the very first point of view character in any of the books, the, the poor guy gets killed by uh, you know killed out in the woods. By the, walker. Um, yeah, by the white walkers. Unfortunately, he doesn't have time to give his his opinion on the relative merits of street theater before he's uh, <laughs> strung <laughs> up from a tree. But presumably he had some opinions, you know, and we don't get to hear what they are.
0: Yeah. Um, right. Like, it's, I don't know. It, is, does this have to do with the idea that, like, you can't, uh, until your, your sort of economic... Uh, situation until your like food and shelter situation is taken care of. You can't turn to what higher forms of cultural production,
1: like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I suppose. I I don't know. I've I've never. Well, I've had a hard time buying into to Maslow's hierarchy because we rarely we rarely stack our drives in ordinal manner like that. Like oh, first I'm gonna do the food. Then I'm gonna do the shelter. Then I'm gonna do the. The entertainment and the the sharing of common cultural tropes to build a bond with the community around me and, and build up social proof, we tend to do all those simultaneously. Like, you know, while we're getting food, we're also joking and and <laughs> jockeying with the people around us. Like, while we're going to sleep, we're looking for someone to sleep with. It's you know, it's simultaneous. It's not it's not literally one than the other.
0: Sure, I I mean I guess that they I I guess that something like that only works kind of at the 30,000 foot level, right? Like not at the level of uh, individual experience. Sure.
2: You could also look at it in kind of a um, a bourdieu way that the mummers in that they appeal to the low class people are therefore unappealing to the, uh, the nobility, right? Who have more refined things to spend their time on, which take more, uh, more training to sort of teach yourself to appreciate and uh, and more money to be able to afford,
0: right? Uh, y- yeah, sure. Um, though everyone enjoys prostitutes, and there was yes, a, uh, right, right. And there was another <laughs> sure. great prostitute training scene uh, in uh, season two, episode one, where uh, w- where you know uh, a uh, what a discerning critic watches a uh, a working girl ply her trade and uh offers helpful critique uh helpful and insightful critique of uh how it's uh, you know how it's going right
2: yeah, I enjoyed that scene. It was like, hey, Game of Thrones is back. You get to check in with all of your favorite characters, like Tyrion and Sansa, and Jon Snow and Caitlyn and uh and Theon and Random Tits.
0: <laughs> yeah, they I mean, hey, there was some uh there was some full frontal in that, you know, later in that scene, which is not the sort of thing you usually see even on HBO, right?
1: Uh, you see that on hbo oh. i mean that, that's that's kind of their value add the ability <laughs> <laughs>
2: the,
1: the, the ability to show for full frontal but only when it's instrumental to the story never you know never just as an accident
0: because i will drop Trow right now if it'll get overthinking it uh, the kind of numbers that hbo gets
1: for for all we know it already we already did
0: we all, we all already have yeah who yes, who for, knows we'll as far it. as
1: you as far as you know listening internet all of us are are full frontal right now
0: we uh we um absolutely we take our artistic mission very seriously here at overthinkingit.com. Uh, although
2: because you're listening to this uh it's just audio, right? It isn't directional in the same way that uh, that light is. Sure. So, really, our naked genitals are sort of floating around you. They can bounce bounce off corners and emanate from, like, rooms that you're not even looking at. You're still in the same sonic space as our genitals right now.
0: <laughs> so, chew on that. Uh, <laughs> is, I mean, and this is, like, this is sort of retrograde in terms of sexual politics, right? Like, obviously, but... Um, uh you know i is it how out of keeping is it with the world that's being uh with the world that's being depicted right like i i i think that like giving prostitute lessons is actually like not in keeping with the painstakingly detailed world building of the George R R Martin novels and probably has more to do with hbo's audience uh Right, and it is more a a pretext to linger on, um, for the camera to linger on, uh, this sort of thing. To to
1: linger on tits.
0: Well, uh, full frontal, to to linger on, you know, full-on nudity, um... There, I mean, that, that's that's certainly true. And, and, and the, in that one scene, John, it has blood, tits and scowling because in you know, <laughs> that one scene, right, there's uh, there's the prostitution lesson, the yes. the infant murder. Yes. Right. And Janos Slint looking, uh, looking um, quite dour. Uh, and also, I mean, scowling is what is a is a metonymy for um, a political intrigue. So it has to do with the political intrigue uh, that uh, Cersei is, uh, you know, engaged in at the moment.
1: Well, it's, it's political intrigue, but it's not.
0: It's not taking
1: joy in the intrigue. Like it's not the mustache twirling, cackling, reveling in one's own evilness. It's a sort of Grim acceptance of real politic and the sacrifices one has to make, uh, not not pleasantly. So it's not it's not taking joy over triumphing over one's enemies. It's a grim necessity. It's like, oh, uh, I guess I have to slaughter all of Robert's bastards. Okay, fine. So yes, hence the hence the scowling.
0: Yeah, it's like it's like it's like going to school. Tyrion seems to be the only one who, like, as a Machiavel, gets any sort of pleasure out of his. Uh... Uh, even just out of the sort of operation of his own mind, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, um, it's a it's a sort of winking
1: pleasure, but he's 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 very good at it, and he oh, I I really I really love Peter Dinklage's. I mean, I, I've I've always liked him as an actor, like not even just specifically for this role as you know a a plotting dwarf, which which obviously he he'd be good at, but. I mean, just just his ability to convey his his performance as an actor.
0: Did did either of you guys see The Station Agent? Didn't see that, but I saw Living in Oblivion uh, before that. Okay.
2: Fantastic in Living in Oblivion
0: <laughs> yeah, right? In, in, in case our listeners don't know In Living in Oblivion Steve Buscemi uh, Who also directs I think he's, he's playing a director in the film And is trying to make an independent film And uh, it's shooting <laughs> a dream, dream sequence uh, And he has cast Peter Dinklage As a dwarf Who appears in the dream sequence And Peter Dinklage storms off the set Uh <laughs> Because he he gets indignant and says, "Why does it have to be a dwarf? Have you ever actually had a dream with a, a dwarf?" Uh, in it? <laughs> um, Steve Buscemi didn't didn't direct. Sorry, Jordan. Well, actually, me.
2: Well, actually, uh, Tom DeCillo or Tom DeCillo. but okay. Yeah, not important um yeah great performance by peter dinklage there and i saw a little bit of the station agent on tv and he was great in that too as Parrish was about to tell us i'm sure well yeah we
1: i checked it <laughs> no it's fine there's there's one scene in particular where you know he's just moved into this house in rural i think new york or pennsylvania some some part of the middle of nowhere and there's this there's this like little coffee hutch or coffee booth like right near his house so he 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 walks up one day and he introduces himself to one of the the movie's secondary characters who's just fascinated by him because you know he hasn't met anyone new in this town for a while and then here's Peter Dinklage coming up to order coffee, and Peter Dinklage's whole shtick in the movie is that he's. You know, so so jaded, so desensitized to people's reactions to him as a dwarf that he he carries this internal like presence and cool that's really just amazing to watch. So just this scene of him like approaching this booth with this awestruck character manning it and ordering coffee, like I, I would I would use that as acting lessons for anyone trying to portray a cool guy. Or like someone who just who just doesn't care what the world thinks of him. Like you use that forty-five second clip as your you know, as your demo, as your practice, real because that's it's it's amazingly done.
2: But yeah, he, and he he is very good in Game of Thrones too, and he does seem to get a lot of uh, joy out of sort of manipulating things. But you get a sense that it's it's partially because his his lot in life has been to be denied a joy so often. You know <laughs> that it, that he kind of has to take his pleasures where he can, and I would say actually the other two characters who get. At least a little like craftsmanlike pleasure out of their scheming, which is Varus and littlefinger also have <laughs> had like pretty raw deals handed to them by uh you know
1: by by society yeah it's uh so I mean we do have we have varying i guess varying tiers of schemers, so I guess on one level they're the very they're the very basic and or, I guess I guess on on escalating tiers of scheming. There's, I guess at the bottom, there's people like Daenerys whose whose path is very direct. Like she needs to get from point A to point B. Literally, in the case of season two, she literally needs to find a city or a source of water that can can feed and and sustain her tribe, or they'll all die. But we we also see a little bit of her. We also see a little bit of her games playing in that you know she's. Not really, uh, one of her, uh, one of her uh, Kalsar, one of her Blood Riders. She's not really flirting with him, I guess, but she's sort of giving him a, you know, I'm depending on you. Which we get the impression is sort of a calculated, you know, hand on the arm in order to to get the guy's attention and get him to go above and beyond for you. Which is, you know, w- which can be which can be a trick if done if done a manipulative fashion, or it can be genuine. We don't really know, but that's like the inner tier of scheming, and then there's the and then there's the outer tier, which is people like uh, Caitlin Stark, who has the bright idea to bring Tyrion to the Eyrie rather than to the North, so, uh, in order to you know in order to have him be brought to justice in, on you know safe ground for her. And ultimately, her scheme doesn't quite work out, but it's it's a stratagem. It 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 works in a sense. And then we progress further and further out, where I guess at the the maximal level are people like Varys and Littlefinger and. Uh Illyrio Mopatis, who we haven't met since very early in the first season, but who, who we learn later on is is one of the one of the other powers behind what's going on right now.
2: Yeah. And it's interesting that like the people who seem to have the most to do with who actually have controlled matters um are not the ones who necessarily get a lot of screen time, right? Like cause, cause that's um I guess, is, is this getting into spoilery territory? Should I not even go here? But uh
0: I, mean, yeah. I, th- I think we've already spoiled... D- didn't I talk about something from book five? I think we've already spoiled it uh, pretty well. I'll put a warning on the show notes.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, th- what you were saying uh, earlier, that, uh, that it's a chaotic world where, like, Joffrey can just be a dick and then everything is plunged into war, like, turns out not really to be true, right? Like, L- <laughs> Littlefinger had sort of... Th- planted that being a dick in Joffrey's mind, and uh, had, like, everything to gain from the world going to crap, um, and, you know, basically ensured that it would. Although, him being the kind of guy that he is, I'm sure he had a, a backup plan for if things went well, well it still that, benefited it him that, somehow.
0: It, I mean, it, yeah, it's beyond that he stands to gain, but there's also this kind of, like, weird obsession that he has with Caitlyn Stark, right, that gets transferred onto Sansa Mm-hmm. Uh, right in books four and five when they when he uh, sort of takes her on and is like is always he, he always seems a little disappointed, even though she's posing as his daughter that, uh, you know, she she uh, declines to stup.
2: Yeah, but I don't, it's not like he did it for that, right? It's not like he was like, well, maybe I can kill Ned so that I can get with Caitlyn. It's more like, well, I'm, I'm putting like stratagem little finger alpha into play. Uh-huh. And if I can get a little action on the side, well, fine, you know, but, but that's not, I don't think that's really what it's about for him. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Sure and then, and for me, sort of the the x factor and this is getting very kind of fanboy speculation ish Varus is always the x factor for me. I haven't read the most recent books, so I don't really know, but I always kind of wonder if maybe maybe varus has uh, has fires and wheels and irons that are deeper even than little fingers that are still uh, still to be pulled out, but he, we shall see
0: yeah, varus shows up in um he shows up in book five, I think and uh he's he's one of the interesting characters and also like the, the uh Arya I think is the is a totally interesting character who gets sort of short shrift uh because she's not i suppose crucial to the to the goings on of the um of the the major plots but i always want to like in book five what Arya does is uh and now right now i get squeamish about spoilers because i don't want to spoil it for you jordan but Ah, whatever (laughs) she's uh she's sort of fascinating to me and i kind of like want i kind of want an extended universe novel right where uh where we learn about the group of people that that she's hanging out with in book five i don't know i weren't you fascinated by them john yes it is, it is interesting,
1: and i, I think that's that's so th- this is a good segue into another discussion I had with the coworkers on Friday, in that it, at this rate hBO is producing the series faster than George R. R. Martin has been producing the novels that inspire the series huh. So if this rate of production continues they are rapidly going to run out of uh, original they're rapidly going to run out of adaptable source material. So
0: you're saying going one book one book <coughs> per summer is an unsustainable pace. Yes. For I mean for, you know, for mere television. For
1: for novels obviously that's that's a little fast, but uh but I guess my question is so I guess for those of you more familiar with with True Blood I know that's that's an adaptation of the the Suki Stackhouse novels. how How close do they? How close does True Blood adhere to the the source material, and how much does it does it deviate? Because I'll be honest, HBO is doing a good enough job with Game of Thrones. I'd be interested to see you know if they're if they want to diverge somewhat from from the other uh, from other aspects of the storyline in the name of making a more interesting narrative, I'd be fine with it, really. Like, I'm, I'm not looking for a literal shot-for-shot, page-for-page adaptation of the books. So I'm looking for entertaining television fiction.
2: And I will say, the, the best moment from uh, that first episode for me was something that was not in the books, which is the fantastic scene where Littlefinger is like, knowledge is power, and Cersei says, no, power is power. <laughs> I thought that was badass. <laughs> um, but... I, don't know. Again,
0: I mean, like this, and it actually, it really, like, that goes uh, precisely to the difference in their characters, right? Like, Cersei, kind of like Shane in The Shield, never looks more than one or two moves ahead, right? She's, she's concerned with her immediate situation and her, her sort of immediate wishes, right? Whereas Littlefinger, like Vic Mackey, is sort of gaming out many 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 levels of the of the game tree right uh you know down and down and down and mm-hmm. down the the long parchment scroll right as he you yeah, know, yeah as as he draws them out because little finger is not wrong right he's uh and and cersei is wrong just not in the very small statistical sample of this one encounter
2: yeah, and, and the thing, though, is that, like, she's not wrong either, and he is wrong because you can tell that he is playing his deep game, and he did not expect this reaction. And, like, if she was a little bit more pissed off at him, then all of his games could be for, for nothing right now, because she could actually have the guy kill him. Right. And he seems to realize that, and it's like, oh, wait a minute, you know, uh, knowledge, knowledge only works uh, if you have all of it, you know? Like, it's, it's, um, it's very yeah. much like the uh, the classic boxing matchup between, like, the boxer and the fighter, right? So your, your Muhammad Ali, George Foreman thing, where, like, if Muhammad Ali plays perfectly, then he will win every time. But if he lets George Foreman, like, get in one combination on his jaw, then he will lose every time because George Foreman is that strong. So, uh, you know, it's, they're, they're interesting characters to bounce off of each other.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's a case of, you know, Littlefinger doesn't have it exactly right. It's that asymmetric knowledge is power, not knowledge in and of its own right. Because as soon as he shares this this little tidbit with Cersei, he surrenders the advantage that he has. And in fact, it's, it's part of Littlefinger's weakness in that he 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 has what it takes to gain power but we've also seen and this is not spoiling anything it's all revealed in the episodes we've seen so far he has a sort of very personal motive for wanting the power that he wants so he's more likely to gloat a little he's more likely to twist the knife a little which is not the most which is perhaps not the most game theory optimal move in any given yeah. situation and that scene was a perfect example like he could have play the very, you know, deferential courtier and, you know, humble member of the Privy Council and gotten away without having a knife put to his throat. So it's, uh, so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a weakness of his perhaps.
0: Well, and that's, yeah, I mean, that's why the, I I guess Game of Thrones is sort of a lab for behavioral economics, right? Because, uh, you get to see people acting irrationally, you know, (laughs) I, I mean, in ways that are in ways that, that, uh, Seem consistent with what we know about their characters. Here in Littlefinger's case, the sense that uh, the, the, our knowledge that he's sort of a striver, he's sort of a lower class striver, right?
1: Yeah, and that's that's part of why that's part of why Joffrey's decision at the end of season one is so is so frustrating to everyone because everyone else is so conscious of the optimal moves in any given circumstance, and Joffrey just completely cuts through that. And that's one of the things that can be. Like if I've had this experience playing uh you know playing diplomacy or playing access and allies or even playing Blackjack with other people who are very conscious of the odds that if there's another player at the table who makes a sub move that gives another competitor an advantage, the people who know the game very well will will throw their hands and be like, "Ah, oh, what are you doing and that can be very frustrating if you're an inexperienced player, but at the same time. That frustration is warranted, because if you really knew the odds, if you really knew everything that was at stake, you wouldn't have made that move.
2: Yeah what's hilarious is when you're you can play someone who's really good at like bridge or chess, where they are your opponent, and every mistake you make brings them closer to victory and they will still be infuriated when you like fail to judge the odds correctly (laughs) (laughs) because like the game the game at that point is more to them than whether you win or lose at the game like the the game
0: there's also there's also a sense in which like i am i am demeaned uh by being matched against an unworthy opponent right
2: kind of yeah but i think it's The specific, like, circumstance where I've had this happen, where I was playing someone who, like, really is good at bridge and remembers every card that's played, um, and, you know, it was a friend of mine, so it's not like uh, they were being like, um, get get this scrub out of the way, um, give me someone actually to play against, but it was just sort of like, yeah, you're not really going to be fun for me to play bridge with because, like, it's going to anger me when you do things like that.
1: I, yeah, we, we get... I don't know if we get that same sense in Game of Thrones for I guess maybe and and this is sort of speculative I would imagine the I would imagine the Starks think the Lannisters are beneath them because the Lannisters are mercenary and brutal and incestuous, as it turns out, whereas the Lannisters don't think the Starks are beneath them. I mean, they think the Starks are stupid and backwoods hicks from the north where, you know, they sleep with wolves all the time and whatnot, but they don't don't think, you know, they don't think less of the Starks for stepping in their way. They, in fact, given given the given the rather i guess unflinching attitude the the Lannister family inculcates about power they don't they don't think much of anyone who's or they don't think less of anyone who's capable of standing in their way like now that i mean they might not they might not like rob stark very much but they recognize that he's won 3 battles and and they haven't won any at this point
2: yeah yeah And the fact that the Starks are kind of idealistic is for the Lannisters inconvenient, but it's not really, not exactly a mark of um, weakness. I mean, it is a weakness, it's something they can capitalize on sometimes, but it doesn't mark them as, you know, as beneath our contempt, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, it, like, I mean, Stan- in, in
0: some ways. Stannis yeah. is, is idealistic, and he's maybe even like a, a more serious competitor. Ultimately, though, I mean, though exactly why is something I don't want to spoil. But, but, yeah. uh, uh, well, no, that's his whole thing is based on the the kind of righteousness of his claim. Yeah,
2: th- that is something actually that like it, we've gotten that in this fr- this first episode, and we can get into it. The idea that uh, that Stannis now has magic, um, which is a big surprising development in this series, because magic has heretofore been something that happens outside of the kingdoms only. Like it either happens in the north with zombies or it happens in uh in the Dothraki sea with the dragons, right? But those are all kind of far, far away territory. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a big dramatic thing. Actually, in the books, it's more dramatic because it's the very first scene of the second book is um, this woman showing up and, and doing some kind of magic spell to, uh, to kill this old man who tries to poison her. Right? I mean, she doesn't kill him, obviously. He kills himself. Uh, she just doesn't die. Yeah. But still it's this big dramatic moment and I think it's very interesting that she's introduced as a sort of religious fundamentalist of the the worst kind which is the sort of the book burning kind. Um that's that's the scene you get to see her doing is like burning other people's religious paraphernalia and then doing magic.
0: And it doesn't I mean it goes even further in the book she's like a religious fundamentalist of the person burning kind.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah. And like, yeah, yeah, she, she goes further down the road, the further you go along, um, but I think it's a, a very interesting move on Martin's part to, to introduce her that way, right, is that you have all of these different claimants to the throne, one of them has some kind of magic backing him up, he seems like the biggest asshole of the lot. Right? That, like, that, even the Lannisters, like, we don't like the Lannisters because uh, Joffrey killed uh, killed Ned and because incest is gross and etc. But, like, what's the worst that's going to happen if they're running the show? Right? Like, taxes go up, probably. A few characters that we're personally invested in are going to have their heads on pikes. <laughs> but, like, for, for, like, the average person living in the uh, in the kingdoms, like, stuff's fine, pretty much. Yeah,
0: they're going to make the trains run on time, right? Yeah,
2: right. <laughs> Like, well, I mean, yeah. in, in fact, if any of the noble houses is likely to, like, develop the society to the point where trains are running, it <laughs> might well be the Lannisters, right? Right. Um, Which is kind of funny to, like, imagine yourself 200 years in the future. Like, which one of these would be the good guy if they won? And Stannis, you get the sense pretty clearly, would have a reign of terror at worst and a sort of dourly, grim, um, and ineffective reign at best. And yet he is the legitimate heir, and he does have magic on his side. Which is a very, very interesting place to take uh heroic fantasy in general. Usually magic is on the side of the uh the truly evil and the truly good, not of the kind of dour and um joyless. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, I have my magic, but I'm not happy about it. I, you know. I know
2: He's that. not. That's, That's the thing. Like do.
0: But there's the sense I mean, there's the sense that this like this red magic, the the fire magic, and I'm thinking of um uh oh i'm thinking of the brotherhood without banners and i'm thinking of uh stannis and kind of what happens with stannis and renly and you know all, all this stuff i like um like what happens to renly i'm you know there's a sense that th- that availing himself of this magic takes a great personal toll on him and be- he becomes sort of g- even more gaunt, where, you know, which you didn't think was possible. Sort of envisioning him, right? Like they—they they did cast a, a very sort of wonderfully gaunt uh, actor to play uh, to play Stannis. I, if if I could have my dream casting, it would be a slightly younger James Cromwell, right, to <laughs> play to play Stannis, and just kind of look uh, weathered and and sort of uh, sort of carved out of carved out of rock. Uh, Here's that when I when I was first
1: reading the uh, when I first read the the Clash of Kings book, which was uh, probably two thousand four, two thousand five, or so, I visualized Stannis, and even though this actor is too old for the part, as uh, J.K. Simmons, the, yeah. the the comic actor who I guess is most recently famous for playing J Jonah Jameson in the last run of Spider Man movies, because you know Stannis is dourness is is sort of funny in a way like when it's when it's not being brutal and terrible it's kind of comical that you know he absolutely can't you know he can't flinch on anything and and jk simmons is very great at playing a a dour humorless you know jackass yeah
2: (laughs) it's uh one of his greatest greatest skills really
0: yeah it's a it's a go-to for him huh um he was also Juno's dad, I think. Yeah, he was the dad in Juno. So He's to get uh, back
1: what? to get back briefly to the motion of of game theory moves in particular. One of the things I really liked about the the season 2 premiere was that you know, while, while all these characters are are scheming and they're conscious of the moves, the moves available to them, they have very different very different senses of the value of each of the moves available. And the, the particular example I'm thinking of is you know, Tyrion <clears throat> Tyrion shows up and berates Cersei like, oh, you know, how can we trade Jamie back when we don't have both of the Stark daughters? You know, we we need both Stark daughters, otherwise we don't have anything to really trade for Jamie. And then a couple scenes later, we have Rob talking to uh, his mother saying, I can't possibly trade Jamie for both of our daughters, who he still thinks the, the Lannisters have. That would be ridiculous. I mean, this is Jamie Lannister we're talking about, and, and versus two girls? I mean, none of my bannermen would accept it. So... Each side is convinced that the other side has an in on them or has an edge on them because they, they know how the game is played and they're sort of – and their own side is keeping up this fumbling, desperate facade. Whereas in reality, both sides are keeping up a sort of fumbling, desperate facade. No one is really as confident as they have to present themselves to be.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. Um and yeah and Rob it's funny Rob's education as as a leader proceeds more slowly in in the book uh right because I guess there's just because there's more time to sort of let developments happen uh over the course of many many pages but yeah. he, he's right there with the the sort of real politique of like no you know in no, no way two girls for one kingslayer no way um like that would not that would not fly with my with my subordinates so he you know he sort of understands that there is not exactly a kind of not exactly a social contract not exactly an issue of like the consent of the governed but that like when you have power you are given power by the people who who you have power over and And, uh and and
1: that's that's one of the and that's one of the themes of the of the second book and the second season like in some of the preview trailers there's I think we've actually seen Varys giving that speech which comes up in The Clash of Kings where he has this sort of thought experiment with Tyrion about, you know, you have a, a sword in a room with, with three men, a priest, a, you know, a king, and a, and a merchant. And the, and the king says, you know, kill the other two, I'm your rightful lord. And the priest says, kill the other two, I'm, I'm your pipeline to God. And the merchant says, kill the other two and I'll pay you. And the, the riddle is, which one does he serve? And they they never answer that explicitly in the book. Although the it's I, it, it's sort of like a Zen Cohen in that the the answer is the thought experiment. Just thinking about the unsolvability or the insolubility of this question and the way it plays out is is a study in the in the game of power. And I think that we're going to see a lot more of that in the second season. The the idea that you know power. Power originates where people believe it to, and the, the, the game, really, the game of thrones, if you will, is manipulating the belief in the appearance of power.
2: It's interesting because, like, another way of thinking about it is that really, of course, the man in that room who has power is the sellsword right <laughs> yeah that, this... that like <laughs> uh that, that uh, when you get right down to it, he's the one with the knife, um and <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, power is power uh,
2: it's uh when you think of it that way, it becomes the riddle of steel from Conan, right, that like steel is weak but as strong as the arm that wields it
0: all right, well, I think maybe we leave it there for the week um. So if, you to, if you want to join that, we didn't even get we didn't even get to community. That's always what, uh, that's always what happens. Um, we, we had a good talk though. I think yeah, I mean, no, we, we had a great talk. We always have a, we always have a better talk than we planned for. <laughs> um, the, which is you know that's the human element that's something you can't uh, that's something you can't game out it doesn't fit on your game theory tree little finger uh, so if you <laughs> want to join this most excellent conversation you can email us at overthinkingit.com. you can call or text 2032856401 or you can join in the discussion in the comments for the show notes of this episode remember to visit slash store to get uh, your episodes of The Overview. And um, we, uh, we, two weeks ago, I promised to ask you uh, to rate the show on iTunes. Uh, and we, we were going to wait a couple weeks so that we could all do it together and um, we could have maximal impact by all sort of coordinating our efforts. Well, my friends, listeners to the Overthinking It podcast, that time has come. Would you please do us a, a great kindness, help out the show, and go on iTunes and rate the show? We'd prefer a five-star rating, but, uh, you know, whatever you think we deserve will be fine. You don't have to write a comment, though we love your comments, and we, we monitor them and keep up with them. Uh, but you can um, just click uh, a number of stars, and would it kill you if that number was five? Um, and let's do it this week. Let's try to surface us into the first page of the uh, TV and film podcasts on uh, iTunes and uh, help other people find the show that way. We would really appreciate it. So uh, we'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcasts. Until then, visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably does it doesn't discharge. <laughs> Why does it have to be a dwarf?
1: Now, rather commands you to rate the podcast at five stars because he is your rightful ruler. But (laughs) I command you to rate the podcast at five stars for this purse of gold.
0: No, I think that's I think we'll get kicked off of iTunes if we bribe the listeners too.
2: <laughs> oh, it's okay. We were never good for it anyway. <laughs>